We are blissfully unaware most of the time that we are sinners. And we are told by the media, the educational system, and society in general that we are just fine the way we are. Nobody is perfect, after all. We need to be more tolerant of other people's ideas and conduct because no one really has a handle on the truth if there is any real truth to be had. All of this mentality boils down to the concept of leave me alone and don't tell me how to live my life. You do what is right in your eyes and I'll do what is right in mine. And this mentality is, of course, what God warned us about in Judges 17 verse 6 that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God's response has always been a condemnation of this attitude. Our own code of ethics is flawed. God does not want us to follow our hearts. He wants us to do what he commands. Instead of doing what is right in our own eyes, we are commanded to do what is right, period. And God defines what is right, not us. God is looking for people whose hearts beat after his own heart, whose definition of what is right and wrong are grounded in the word of God, not the fancies of mankind, whose decisions for their actions are based on whether or not God is pleased with what they do, not whether or not it is what they personally want to do. It is this constant dichotomy in our lives between what God tells us to do and what we actually do that constitutes this problem of sin. It is the greatest problem that we as humankind face. Again, most of us are blissfully unaware that this problem even exists. Others are mildly aware of it. Some are burdened by it, and a few are crippled by it. There is no doubt, however, that God is intimately aware of this problem and sin does not please him. Brethren, we can sum up the entirety of this message by answering the question, what is the problem of sin? We are. We are the problem of sin, and this problem will be dealt with by God. Nay, it has already been dealt with, as we will study today. Sin is not something that is external to us. It is what we are by our very nature or essence. We live in a sin-cursed world. Everything that we survey, everything that we can touch and feel, anything that we can experience through our senses is all tainted with sin and its effects. We cannot escape its influence. And as such, we have come to live with it. The sin has become so familiar with us that we can almost ignore it. And when it is ignored, sin is the most deadly. Well, what is sin? Although it is a state of being for us and for fallen angels, we are sin. It is also rebellion towards God. We are, as humankind, in active rebellion against God. God says, do this, and we instinctively do not. He says, don't do this, and we instinctively do it anyway. Now it is true that God has said, do not kill. And the vast majority of us do not kill other people on a regular basis. 
But the fact that we don't always contradict God in thought and action is a testament to his restraining grace, not an indication of our goodness. In order for us to understand what sin is, we must also understand what sin is not. Sin is always defined by its comparison to God. God cannot sin. God cannot sin because God cannot be anything more than himself. Nor can he go against his own nature. Nor can he disobey himself. God always operates on his own and cannot be influenced by others. He always does what is right. Conversely, sin can be ascribed to any sentient being other than God. Angels can sin. People can sin. Indeed, God's holiness or sinlessness, the idea of being set apart, is what separates us from him. God cannot sin. Everybody else can. God cannot go against his nature. We constantly go against his nature. Therefore, all sin is first and foremost against God. Whenever we sin, no matter what it is, no matter who we are seemingly have committed it against, we sin always against God and against him first. And at this first point, we immediately might start be having some issues. Am I really saying that if someone commits murder, that the first and foremost person that is sinned against is God and not the person that is killed? Yes, I am. You see, we do not have any basis for morality apart from God. It was God who commanded in Exodus 20, verse 13, that we should not murder. If you haven't done this and believe that it's a good thing not to do, great. You believe God on this matter. But God has also said in Exodus 20, verse 16, not to lie. How have you done with that one? I dare say all of us here are liars. So therefore... All liars have sinned against God. Now, do we want to be told the truth? Is telling the truth a good thing to do? And at this point, you may be thinking that there might be some situations that would merit a little white lie. God says no lying, and yet we're already compromising his commands. Our morality did not evolve socially over thousands of years. If anything, history has shown us that our morality is constantly declining, not improving. In fact, God has said that our society will continue to decline until everyone does only evil all the time. Do you believe God? It is important to note that sin indeed affects others. And I chose murder as my initial sin as the ultimate indiscretion against a fellow human being. It is very true that the person has been wronged. But our initial primary mea culpa is against the holy God who designed this universe. Being a murderer means you killed one of his creations. That created being belongs to God, and he told you not to kill. I would offer to you that all sin committed offends at least two parties. Even, that, even sin that seems well hidden to us hurts people other than God. God says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, that we can even sin 
against ourselves. Ultimately, all sin comes down to believing God. Those who sin, sin because they don't believe God. Those who do not believe God, do not obey God. When you or I sin, we choose not to believe God, even though for some, for some of us, we know better. God says not to lie, or there will be consequences for disobedience, and we lie anyway. Will there be consequences? It all comes down to your belief. To understand this concept, let's look at two distinctly different approaches to God's commands. The first is found in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. Genesis 2, 16 and 17 reads, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now in chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now here we have the account of the original fall of mankind. In her discussion with the serpent, the veracity of God's command is called into question. That was enough to establish doubt in Eve's mind. But in addition, the integrity of God's character was called into account when Satan suggested that Adam and Eve would be like God if they disobeyed his command. As an aside note, these same two attacks on God are present always when we sin. We question if we have been told the truth by God, and we question whether obedience to his commands are actually beneficial to us. Eve disbelieved God, and it discredited her as being unrighteous. Have we ever stopped to consider the effect one small sin of disbelief has had upon our race? Just one little sin. Yes, that one little sin is all it takes to ruin us. Sin is dangerous. All who touch it die. Now, conversely, let's look at the calling of Abram, who would become Abraham. Genesis 12, the first five verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. 
And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Abram's calling and subsequent obedience to God is different than Eve's account. Eve had experiential knowledge of God. That is, she knew God and even talked with him face to face. Abram is called out of his idolatry. He didn't know God, and yet his response is obedience. In no less than four separate places in Scripture, it reads that Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous. Genesis 15, verse 6, Romans 4, verse 2, James 2, verse 23, and Galatians 3, verse 6. Do we believe God? Do our actions prove belief or unbelief? Now, how did sin come to be? As far as we can see within Scripture, Satan was the first to sin. In Isaiah 14, verses 12 and following, it reads, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And we learn a little bit more in Ezekiel 28, verses 12 and following. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed chariot, cherub, guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of of your splendor. Some undisclosed time after creation, but before the temptation of Eve, Satan sinned. He was created stunningly beautiful and flawlessly perfect. Yet as perfect as he was, he could not keep himself from sinning. You see, Satan's fall demonstrates a tremendous truth that we as humans need to grasp. Satan, in all of his pre-fallen splendor and perfection, could not sustain his holiness apart from God. Every creature is completely and utterly dependent on the Creator for everything. No creature lives apart from God. Apart from the staying power of God to keep his creations holy, every creature will fall. We have no holiness of our own. 
And I believe that is the reason that Satan fell from glory. It was because he was allowed to sin. Sustaining grace was removed from Satan, and he fell. God says of himself, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Exodus 33, verse 19. Brethren, this was true of God before sin entered the world, and will be true of him when the world is no more, because God does not change. This is important for us to understand. God did not adopt his stance on mercy and grace as a result of sin entering the world. No, this has always been the way that God operates. He has grace and compassion on whoever he wants. It was also in his plan that Eve would fall to the temptation of Satan and that Adam would willingly choose to be with his wife than with God. It was also in God's plan to save some of mankind while at the same time refusing to save any of the angels who fell along with Satan. God has mercy on who he wants to show mercy. And this trait leaves him completely untarnished. Now the world likes to point to God and name him as the author of sin. But this is not true. Sin was not created. Sin was allowed. And because it was allowed, we learn just how dependent we are upon God's grace. Not just for our covering of our sin as Christians, but also for the continued grace simply to exist with him. Wrongly naming God as the author of sin is merely one of many falsehoods concerning sin. And as we look at the subject of sin this morning, it is important that we address some other misconceptions. The second falsehood concerning sin is closely related to calling God the author of sin. I sin because God made me this way, and God makes no mistakes. In response, God says in Ecclesiastes 7.29 that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. <clears throat> Mankind was perfect. Adam and Eve sinned. Our race died as a result. Every single person since has been born with a sin nature. That is both the reason for our sin and at the same time not an excuse for it. It is true that God makes no mistakes. But your sin is no mistake. The culpability for our wickedness falls squarely on us. Thirdly, there is no scale of degree for sin. Any sin no matter how small we may view it in comparison to other sins, is more than enough to convict us of guilt before God and condemn every one of us to hell. James 2, verse 8 and following says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Brethren, God has one standard. Righteousness. 
If we have sinned just one time, we fall short of this standard and are in tremendous trouble. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And falling short of God's glory means that you have nothing but God's judgment to look forward to. There are no little white lies. All lies, no matter how small they may appear to us, are wicked, blackened, rebellious words to God. Fourth, because sin is so common, it can't really be that bad. And along with that idea, God can't punish every single one of us, can he? And sin is both common and serious. God's response to sin is always the same. God punishes sin. The whole world once stood in such copious amounts of sin that God wiped out most of it and started over. The great flood of Noah's day ought to wake us up to how God views sin. Genesis 6, 5 and following gives insight into God's thought process as he viewed the workings of mankind. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Brethren, the commonality of sin does not dilute the wrath of God. It compounds it. There is a tipping point when the cup of the wrath of God spills out. Those caught in that flood will wish that they were drowning in water and not God's wrath. The idea that God will not wipe all of us out is partially true. And it is not true because of how common sin is in mankind, but rather because of his mercy. We'll look at this a bit more in a few moments, but for right now, understand that this very important fact, that it would be just and right and holy for God to save no one who sins. It would be just and right and holy to send all sinners to hell forever with no recourse for remediation. In fact, he does just that with the angels who fell. Second Peter 2 verses 4 and following says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with the seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. God spares some due to his grace, 
but most are not saved. Think of the ratio of people saved versus those lost in the flood of Noah's day. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Lastly, although there are many misconceptions concerning sin, one is coming from the ranks of believers. It is possible to be without sin this side of glory. Consider the great warnings to the believers of the New Testament church concerning sin. Hebrews 3, 12 through 19 reads, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you in an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that, he would not, that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This passage was written to believers, not unbelievers, encouraging them to rid themselves of sin. Later in Hebrews 12, it reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brethren, sanctification is both a completed task by God and, at the same time, a continual process in the lives of every Christian. We are not zapped with complete holiness at our conversion. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans 8, verse 29. That conforming is a huge process. We do not resemble Jesus Christ very much at our birth as a new Christian, and we still do not resemble him very much as aged saints. We need to be completely transformed. No one ceases to sin while here on earth. This body of sin must die. With its death, the last manifestations of sin die alongside of it. Those who say they are without sin are first in error according to the scriptures. For 1 John 1 verse 8 says... If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Notice it does not say if we say we have no sin, we have finally arrived at complete holiness. It says that the truth is not in us. That means we're definitely not completely sanctified as we are lying. Secondly, if we say we have no more sin and are now like Christ here on earth, that demonstrates a lack of understanding of just how holy Jesus Christ actually is. 
such a comparison demeans him. That person has either never encountered the uniquely begotten, holy, righteous Son of God, or has somehow forgotten him. Let us not be in this error, brethren. Sin is the root of all of our problems as humankind. From every slight discomfort to an agonizing death, sin is the reason for our suffering. You know, if we actually understood this concept, we might actually hate sin instead of hating God. Nonetheless, it's true. In a perfect world, no one gets hurt. There's no pain because there is no harm. No one stubs their toes. No one falls down. No accidents happen. No one causes malicious harm. And no one causes inadvertent harm either. But we live in a sin-cursed world and almost, if not everything, causes harm. Animals maul and kill. Insects bite and sting. The sun burns and dehydrates. Water drowns. Gravity pulls many to their deaths. Infections wreak havoc on our systems. You name it, everything can cause harm in this world. Everything, including ourselves. We harm ourselves in ways nature cannot. We harm those we hate. We cause them pain either physically, mentally, emotionally, or a combination of all three. You know, and we harm those we love in the same ways sometimes. All of our relationships are marred with sin. Relationships with our spouse, children, parents, family, employers, employees, friends, and even encounters with complete strangers, all of them are dripping with sin from everyone involved. Why do so many marriages end in divorce? Compatibility issues? Nope. Sin. Why is there so much tension between parents and children? Well, that's just part of the growing up process, right? Nope. Sin. Relationships aside, in everything we do, we expect a certain level of difficulty and or risk or harm. And we call people foolish who do things that go beyond what our evaluation of the risk for harm is for a certain activity. Quit your steady job to try your hand at professional sculpting. You're crazy. You're risking failure and economic ruin. What about skydiving? Why would I jump out of a plane willingly, even with a parachute strapped to my back, if any parachute has ever failed? And they have. Why would I put myself in a situation where my parachute might be the one that would fail? Yet people do it all the time. But my attitude would be different if parachutes never failed. The effects of sin vary greatly, but they all have one thing in common. Eventually, one of them is going to kill us. Whether it be a failed parachute, or succumbing to a disease, or simply dying due to the fact that my body is going to wear out. All of these things, all of this pain, all of this suffering can be directly traced to sin. And yet, we love it. There are some things we need to learn about our suffering due to sin. And let's look at the power behind this. Going back to Genesis 3, verses 14 and following, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed 
are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field? On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. All of our suffering is due to the curse God placed on us, as well as the rest of his creation. Now, speaking of the rest of creation, Romans 8, verse 19 says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, I mentioned earlier that we all eventually are killed by some effect of sin. It is this fact that ought to cause us to really despise and hate sin. Here are some passages that ought to help us in our hatred for sin. We've already read Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you pair that with Ezekiel 18 verse 4, The soul who sins shall die. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. James 1.15 and 16, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And as morbid as this thought is, this thought is it is no less true. Sin has killed many of my loved ones already. In time, it will kill everyone I know and hold dear. Eventually, it will kill me as well. Brethren, death is not natural. We were designed for life. But the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Why, oh why, would I be a friend of sin? To say so means I'm a friend of death. And I hate death, and I hate sin. But I don't hate sin enough. Not yet. I know this about myself, and I dare say if you are honest with yourself, it is true of you too. We may not be able to be sinless this side of eternity, but we could be much more holy than we are right now if we held a proper view of this enemy of our souls. There is one more relationship that has been made painful, as a result of sin, it is that between us and our Creator. God cannot abide sin. He must turn his face away. Habakkuk 1 verse 13, You who are of pure eyes, then to see evil, and cannot look at wrong. 
Conversely, we cannot abide God's holiness. Isaiah 6, the first five verses. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So holy is God that even the holy seraphim mentioned this passage cannot look upon God. They cover their faces in his presence. Isaiah, the prophet of God, and wretch that he was, recognized his state immediately. Woe is me, for I am lost. Thus, with both parties unable to be together, someone has to leave, and it's not going to be God. This is his universe, not ours. As a result of Satan's sin, he was cast down from heaven, away from God. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, they were driven out of the Garden of Eden, away from God. As a result of my sin, and as a result of your sin, we are both away from God. There can be no relationship between God and sinful creatures. God actively removes sin from his presence. The only relationship we now share with him is angry God to objects of wrath. It goes without saying that the reason we suffer anything here and now is because of this. Our first and primary relationship has been severed by our sin. If we were holy like God, we could be with him. But as it stands now, we cannot be with him. Brethren, there should be a war waging right now between us and our sin. The war with sin is the war within. Are you in battle today or are you at peace? To be at peace in the war with sin can mean several things. First, it can mean that we are not saved and we are blissfully unaware of the approaching violent destruction of our souls. We're at peace with sin because we're on the same side. There is no opposition. That's why Christians are warned in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And if we are in the faith, we may still have compared ourselves with others around us and have determined that we're not doing too bad a job. It doesn't take long, after all, to find other people who are worse off than we are. I'm not a drug dealer. I don't steal and I don't cheat on my wife. Yeah, there are lots of people who do, you know. Yes, there certainly are. But you have compared yourself to other fallen people. And as we have already seen, there are no degrees of sin. 
Should you be compared to the worst villain of all of mankind's history? And should you only have one small white lie to your name, were it possible, both of you would share the same fate of eternal punishment in hell. And we like to compare ourselves with others, but God doesn't compare us that way. There is one standard, godly perfection. When compared with that, you don't look so good. Neither do I. If we have Christians and have done this comparison, we have lost sight of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ, the uniquely begotten Son of God, lived a perfectly holy life. Unlike our own pitiful lives, which have been all about following our own fickle wills, Jesus said this about his own life. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5, verse 30. Compared against the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we look hideous. Isaiah 64, verse 6 reads, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Quite frankly, we are all worse than we believe ourselves to be. The hymn writer Robert McShane wrote the song, When This Passing World Is Done. Listen now to some of the verses. When this passing world is done, when has sunk young glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory looking o'er life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I stand before the throne dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Even on earth as through a glass, darkly let thy glory pass. Make forgiveness feel so sweet, make thy spirit's help so meet. Even on earth, Lord, make me know something of how much I owe. Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side, by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. When in flowery paths I tread, off by sin I'm captive led. Oft I fall, but still arise. The Spirit comes, the tempter flies. Blessed Spirit, bid me show weary sinners all I owe. We just do not understand how bad we are. Jesus dealt with this very concept in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the scribes and Pharisees were the spiritually elite among the people of the day. They knew the scriptures well. They taught the people about God. They looked good to all who witnessed their actions. Pious, chaste, solemn, 
and religious. And Jesus said that unless our righteousness exceeds theirs, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Brethren, they were the best we had to offer in obedience to God's commands. And Jesus is basically saying they're not good enough, and neither are you. The Bible is clear. If we are to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the best of mankind, we're going to need the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. None of our righteousness is good enough for God. Paul said in Philippians 3, 7 through 10, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. For the Christian, this life is to be one of constant struggle with our sin. We are called to put on the armor of God in order to do battle with the schemes of the evil one. We are also to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Romans 13, verse 14. And how goes the war, Christian? Do you look more like your Savior today than yesterday, or have you made peace with the enemy? The reason we fail so much in our war with sin is that we are not well equipped for the battle. The scriptures are the sword of the Spirit. Are you actively holding your sword, or have you put it down? If you want to be victorious over your sin, expose it to the light of the Word of God. Sin cannot abide in the presence of God and your sin doesn't stand a chance against his holy word. In truth, for the Christian, the war is actually already won. And it is not because we have done battle and are not at rest. No, rather Jesus Christ has done battle with our enemy for us and has soundly defeated sin and death by his substitutional death for his people. By doing so, Jesus has made a way for us to be in God's presence. He has made a way to make us holy. He has mended the relationship rent by our sin. He has made peace on our behalf with God the Father. And he now looks at us with love and favor instead of anger and wrath. Concerning Jesus' death, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 reads, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Earlier we read about Abraham's belief in God in comparison to Eve's lack of belief. Paul expands on Abraham's faith in Romans chapter 4 through 5. No unbelief made him, that is Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now verse 12 of chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass or sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here we see the extent of God's dealing with sin. Sin has not been left to completely run rampant. Jesus Christ has taken the punishment for our sins. God punished all of the sins of all of his people in the death of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Because he has punished our sin, he, we cannot be punished for them again. To do so would be unjust and ungodly. Such a great act of love towards us demands a life of thankfulness. In addition, the Christian is to be about constantly renewing our minds, constantly turning away from our sin, constantly repenting of it. The war is over, but each Christian is still in a battle against residual sin. Continuing now in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And towards the end of Romans, Paul again appeals to the Christians. Chapter 12, the first two verses. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brethren, these are not strong suggestions for the people of God. They are what is expected from people who claim to love Jesus Christ. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, verse 15. Notice he did not say, If you love me, you will tell me and everyone else that you love me. Do you claim to love Jesus Christ? Are you keeping his commandments? Or are you harboring your sin? Jesus also said, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. Matthew 6, verse 24. We demonstrate exactly who we love by our actions, not our words. For the unbeliever, I say to you, wake up. You are speeding headfirst into the hands of an angry God. Hebrews 10, verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As said before, God will deal with all sin. He has either already dealt with your sin in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, or he will deal with your sin on the day of judgment. Revelation 20, verse 11 and following. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you still think that God is unfair in dealing with your sin, remember this. God never offered redemption to the angels who fell. What about them? But God has offered redemption to mankind. John 3, 16 and following. You know the first verse, but maybe not the ones that follow. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Believe God concerning who you are and who he is. We are all sinners, wicked to the core. God is holy, gracious, and forgiving. Call on him today to save you. He stands ready, willing, and able to do just that. I leave you with these verses from Isaiah 1. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Our Father, I pray that you would bless your word to our hearts. Lord, if we have indeed made peace with our sin, I pray that you will awaken us to this. Lord, we often go days and times where we're not reading your word. We have put down our sword. I pray, Lord, that you'll work in our hearts. Conform us into the image of your son. That doesn't happen in a vacuum, Lord. It happens because of the word of God and the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we'll be vigilant against our sin and that we will hate it and its effects as you do. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for coming and making a way for us to have peace with God. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.